You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Amped. The first step. I'm standing on the steep slate roof of Alderdice High School, gripping a rain-spattered wrought iron decoration in one hand and holding up my other hand, palm out. Don't, I'm saying to the girl in front of me. Please don't. My hand wavers, tracing incantations of fear and panic in the air. Just beyond my outstretched fingers is something that has been spiraling out of control for years. Only I shouldn't call her something. Should never call her a thing. Somebody is what I mean. It's the technology, see? We can't get away from it. Anywhere you find people, you find it. Clever little contraptions. Cunning strategies. We're toolmakers born and bred. And if you don't believe in anything else, you'd better believe in that. Because that's human nature. It's the tools that make us strong. And it's the tools that put a girl on the edge of this roof. I crawled out here against all advice the second I heard who it was. I owe this girl a debt, and I could never repay it, but I'm doing my best to try. Samantha is just 15. The wind is smearing her brown hair against gray skies, pushing her tears in streaks across her blank, emotionless face. Alderdice is a massive school, built during the industrial genesis of Pittsburgh. Sam stands on the precipice, six stories up. The rain is spitting at us through afternoon sunlight, and the dull stone building seems to be bleeding or crying or both. I can't believe she's really going to jump. Not after all she's been through. You make a tool to fix a problem, right? But, and I've thought about this, it's the boundaries that define us. Bold black lines that can't be crossed. The limits of human ability. Lately, the edges have been torn off the map. Now we're all getting lost. Eight years ago, a little kid named Samantha Blex missed a week of class. In the first photos on the news, you could see Sam was a little cross-eyed. She smiled a lot through her kid-sized purple eyeglasses. Cute. The kid was all slobber and grubby fingers and grins, had a habit of putting blocks in her mouth. That's why, when Samantha walked back into school after her week-long hiatus, a lot of the other kid's parents were scared. Terrified is more like it. A textbook case of fight or flight, with a serious lean toward fight. See, Sam wasn't cross-eyed when she came back to class. She didn't put blocks in her mouth anymore, either. In fact, Samantha Blex pretty quickly demonstrated that she was now the smartest kid in third grade. After a few breathless rounds of testing, Sam turned out to be in the top 100th percentile on citywide intelligence tests. The kid had one hell of a week away. In an interview, Sam's teacher told a reporter in a shaky voice that he wasn't sure if Sam was still the same little girl now that she'd visited her doctor and been given a neural autofocus implant. That quote grabbed a lot of airtime. I felt really bad about it later. Should have known better than to say it. And that's how it started, with sweet little Sam walking back into my classroom, looking me right in the eye with a new spark of intelligence, a new electricity altogether. Daniel Wilson is the author of books that include How to Survive a Robot Uprising, Tips on Defending Yourself Against the Upcoming Rebellion, Where's My Jetpack, A Guide to the Amazing Science Fiction Future That Never Arrived, How to Build a Robot Army, Mad Scientist Hall of Fame, and Bro-Jitsu. His book, Robopocalypse, is currently being developed for film by Steven Spielberg. His new book is Amped. Thank you for joining me, Daniel. Hey, thanks for having me, Rick. 
at its core, at the very beginning, this book has a really fascinating and very timely problem that you set forth, which is what happens when the Supreme Court creates a legal definition for what is human? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, the whole book is kicked off really when the Supreme Court makes a decision about not necessarily what's human, which would be kind of on the nose, but just what what constitutes a protected class in the eyes of the law. And so in the past, uh, protected classes have included, you know, your race, your gender, your religion. These are all things that you cannot be discriminated against for in the United States. Uh, even your age, you know, if it's uh, above 40, I think. Um, and so once they find that you can be discriminated against for having an implant, then people uh, start to do that with gusto. One of the things that I love about this book, you kick it off you're in very familiar territory for you with a bit of fictional nonfiction where you give us, have the whole um, instructions for the auto neural <laughs> focus implant. Um, so talk about developing that piece of technology that's really at the core of the book. Yeah, you know, the neural autofocus is the difference, you know, so it's, I, I really like science fiction where you have a really recognizable world and there's one thing that's different. And so then you really have the opportunity to examine it from all the different angles and say, how would the world change if a neural autofocus showed up? And so talking to brain implant specialists and surgeons, um, you know, I was able to work through what this would be. And the neural autofocus is based in, pretty much on existing neural implants that are used to treat epilepsy. And so what these neural implants do is they sit inside, they sit on the surface of your brain and they listen for a pattern of uh, activity in your brain that indicates that you're going to have a seizure. And then whenever they notice that, they stimulate your brain to avoid the seizure. And the neural autofocus does almost the exact same thing. It looks at your brain and it waits for a state of inattention. And then when it sees that, it pushes the brain toward beta band frequencies, which is a state of focused concentration. So the people that have neural autofocus go from being people with ADHD in the, who can't focus on anything to people who can learn really fast, um, both physical tasks and, and, and mental tasks and just knowledge. So they just become really smart. One of the things I thought that was so interesting about this technology is it really keys in with a lot of the latest understanding of the brain and the importance of the unconscious roles and our subliminal roles and what's happening under the hood. Our conscious minds, we used to always think that our conscious minds were handling everything, yeah. but that's not the case and that's one of the big differences that this uh, implant makes in your book. Yeah, this is something I love. I was, you know, I'm always inspired by my friends and this, just the interactions I'm having and so I have a friend in Portland named Taylor Clark who wrote a book called Nerve. And it was all about the science of fear. And while talking to him about this, you realize that there's this part of your brain called the amygdala, right? And so, you know, when a, it's the part of your brain that keeps you from getting hit by a bus. And the way that it does that is it, it has very, very fast reaction times. And the reason that it has such a fast reaction time is because it's not looking at everything you can see. It's not doing all the high-level visual processing. It's not doing any of that. It has a very blurry picture of the world, but it actually reacts to the world faster than your executive, which is the, th the thought process that we all think of as us. 
And so when you really start looking at all the different parts of the brain that are all working at the same time, you realize that it's this long train and we, you know, the capital W, we, the executive function, the little man at the steering wheel, we're in the caboose. <laughs> and we're really, we're really controlling our bodies after waiting several milliseconds for all the information to process. We're operating in the world with a serious delay. And so what happens is in the book, the neural implant can allow you to operate in the world with, uh, you know, a millisecond or two jump on everybody else at hard limit spinal reaction times. But you're not able to ex make executive decisions. You have to allow the implant to, uh, to learn what you would have done and then execute your actions. And so you're giving away control to the machine uh, in order to get this amazing jump on everybody else. And, and that's kind of the, that's the zenith implant that's in the book that is used by, by military people. This is a classic science fiction Faustian bargain. You get, you get asked for the technology that helps you, and it allows bad things to happen. Yeah, and it, it cuts right to a, the central theme of technology that I see, which is, you know, every time we have a new powerful technology, which is every day, we have something new and more powerful, uh, the stakes go up because we can do good things or we can do evil things with this technology. And so we wonder whether we're good or evil, right? And we wonder whether we're going to destroy ourselves or whether we're going to do amazing things. And, and th these implants that people are using, they're literally making the decision, well, I'm going to let the implant do this for me. And I wonder, you know, am I good or am I evil? Am I going to do good things or evil things with this technology? And it just makes it very personal. There's a, a line in the book where Owen uh, Gray, who's our main character, his father is the creator of the Zenith chip. He thinks that no matter how little we get out of technology, we were addicted to it. Even if the upgrade is from Windows 95 <laughs> to Windows 95.x, we still do it and we're st we can't let it go. And I think that's really one of the really interesting visions of technology you have, is that it's, it's an addiction. Well, at its heart, I feel like we are on a runaway train. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I, I, think it's, <laughs> I think it's the most wonderful thing about human beings that there is. You know, we, uh, we keep getting ourselves deeper and deeper into the quicksand, and we keep having to create more and more intricate uh, technology in order to keep our heads above the, you know, the, the water. And so we're constantly challenging ourselves, you know, just by making babies, by creating more human beings, we... Uh, push ourselves to be more ingenious in our way in figuring out how to stay alive and how to keep our population alive. And it propels us forward. You know, we're, we're on a trajectory. We're moving forward uh, with our technology. We're both evolving at the same time. And, you know, I would much prefer that rather than the notion of sort of a circular path where we, where we just sit around on the planet waiting to be hit by a meteor. <laughs> um. Uh, talk a little bit about, uh, there's a lot of really great high concept in this book, but it's also got great plot and characters, which is what carries us through. That's the, the power of the novel is that makes the abstract discussions of technology into real things with emotions. And I'd like you to just talk a little bit about developing the characters and the plot that uh, make this novel involving and engrossing. 
Well, this was a lot different than Robopocalypse because mm -hmm. in Robopocalypse, I got to jump around. And so I had a lot of different scenarios I wanted to explore. And so then I just did. But in, in this book, it's a single protagonist and we're following him contiguously through time. And so there were a lot of sites that I wanted to see, you know, on his trip because a lot of really interesting themes are invoked by, um, by the idea of, of creating a new class of person with, a, with an implant that has to, and then having these people essentially embark on a civil rights crusade. And so um, in order to weave my character through all of these <laughs> different uh, scenarios that I wanted him to be in, you know, it was actually very difficult to, to make that happen. But for each chapter, I kind of had an underlying theme that I wanted to get across. And then um, I also had to make it serve the plot. And so you know, it was really just a, it was like an interpolation problem <laughs> that, I, that I worked through. And, you know, and if you go too far in either direction, it's no fun. You know, if you just have plot with, with no thematic underpinning, then it's just like empty calories, you know. But if you have, if you only serve your theme, then it, it feels like he would be like Forrest Gump, you know. He would, be a, <laughs> he would be at every historic moment, you know, throughout this entire period of in time. And, and that just doesn't make sense. So you really have to strike a balance. Do you plot in advance? Do you, like, have a spreadsheet? Seems like you almost might could use a spreadsheet or some kind of yeah. tool. <laughs> I absolutely, yeah, use a spreadsheet. So I, uh, I have to, you know. And before I lay it out, I just like to know, you know, basically what's going to happen. But what's great about the process is that, you know, you throw down a vague spreadsheet and you kind of have a couple sentences describing what's going to happen and what theme thematically you want to hit on. And then you let loose and you just go for it. And it's, it's great how you look back on it and you go, man, I was just like, drinking a cup of coffee, doing nothing. There was nothing special about that morning. And then I, I just wrote the one sentence that I love most, you know, out of everything I've ever written. And you never know because you just throw down a lot of stuff all day long and then you go back and clean it up later and go, oh, wow, you know, I, there was something good on this day. That's terrific. Um, yeah, so it's a surprising process for me. You know, <clears throat> one of the things I think is uh, uh, so interesting about this book is you chose to write it in present tense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I write a lot of stuff in present tense, and I just find that it's just so much more immediate, you know. And for me, it just removes a, uh, another layer that separates the reader from the, the main character, you know. So I don't like to do a lot of uh, internal monologuing. I, I love a lot of books that do that, where you descend into the character's head, and you're there with them thinking about, you know, a lot of stuff. And... Instead, I, I tend to like to let the characters express themselves through their actions. And I find that writing in present tense, you're just there for it. You know, you're, you've got that first person POV and you're in the front of the roller coaster and you can see your hands are on the bar and, you know, you just let the wind hit you in the face and, and go with it. And, and it's just how I like to do it. You're in the amygdala of the writing <laughs> yeah, you're process. Yeah, you're in the, the, the front of the locomotive, not in the caboose. This book has a really interesting vision, too, of the law as a form of technology. And it's not a helpful form of technology <laughs> for the most part. So I'd like you to talk about um, the cascading legal implications once this decision is handed down by the Supreme Court. And a whole class of human beings is described as no longer having any kind of protection. Um, yeah. Talk about it. I mean, 
school and and also at the heart of this book and it's reprinted in this uh, beginning is the 14th amendment yeah so equal protection and you know that the very first supreme court case is actually modeled after brown versus the board of education which says which ultimately ruled that you can't be denied equal protection under the law for an immutable characteristic something that you can't change and and this is why actually public schools um, serve uh, children with disabilities because those disabilities are considered immutable and of course that was originally about race it was about ending segregation in schools and and so as a fallout now kids that have disabilities can go to public schools so you know what that original Supreme Court case was about in Amped is um, the same thing except for kids that have implants and and when they rule that the implantation t process is elective you can choose to do it and therefore if you do choose to do it then you also choose to take on the burden of being uh, discriminated against for it well it immediately has all sorts of repercussions so first of all schools don't have to a lot of kids go home from from school um, the fashion changes people start wearing sunglasses that dip down so that you can see that they have a clean temple because everyone with an implant has a, a port like a little freckle on their temple and so it becomes very uh, very much a faux pas to have any sort of blemish on your temple or any indication that you might be an amp um, another sort of legal ramification comes in contract law so uh, a regular person can't enter into a contract with a person who has diminished capacity because they're too young or they have a mental disability or they can't be trusted to look after their own rights. Well, uh, in, in AMPT, a uh, court finds that really smart people who have enhanced intelligence as a result of these implants confer diminished capacity on regular people. So in other words, regular people are can't be trusted to act in their own best interests when they enter into a contract with a really smart AMPT. AMP, which means that all the contracts go away. Um, leases and marriage certificates and any all the contractual glue that binds the country together. And so AMPs really quickly, as a result of these court cases, find that uh, there is no support for them um, from the government. And so they're really out there on their own. And it's very much a sort of early World War II feel, um, like Poland at the beginning of World War II or just before it. Um, it's a very creepy, queasy feeling that you have as you watch your rights start to erode. It's an interesting form of horror fiction because it's not the terror necessarily of being killed or being maimed or attacked. It's the, the terror of just not having the right to do things. Yeah. And it's so it's super relevant, too. I mean, we've got Proposition 8 headed on its own roller coaster uh, sure. locomotive. Uh, we're, not done with, we're not done with our civil rights movements, and, and, <laughs> no. and I don't know that we ever will be. It's a constant struggle that people have uh, to recognize each other's rights. And it's, it's a struggle that's not going away. It's a very human thing. In your book, it has such a nice, gritty feel to it. And... I'd like you to just talk a little bit about getting down there and creating some of the technology that comes out from this use, the uses of these amplification devices in construction and other places. Uh, so it, it gives uh, those of us who are over 55 the ability <laughs> to be employable again. Yeah, so another sort of uh, consequence for society of this new technology is that 
the the vast majority of people who have lost physical and, and mental capabilities through the natural aging process uh, can go back and, and regain it. And so there's a lot of characters who are old vets. These are just, you know, old men who are in wars and the VA, they're all on disability and, and the VA has actually given them exoskeletons that interface with neural implants uh, that allow them to rejoin the workforce. And of course, they're happy to. What else are they going to do? They have uh, the strength that they had when they were 25, so they go straight back to working construction. And they don't ask for a lot of money either, because that's not the reason that they're working, you know. And so all the people, the young people that are displaced are very unhappy about this. And, you know, you think about right now, there's 40 million people in the United States that are over the age of 65. And I think they project that the number of people over, the percentage of people over 65 will be up around 25% uh, in the next 10, 20 years. And so when you look forward, you realize a huge contingent of our population is going to be older. And they're going to want to uh, to use this technology to get their former capabilities. As this plays out in terms of plot and character, it's really involving. And I think this is a very delicate line that you uh, travel here when you create some of these characters there's you know it's possible for them to become kind of heavy-handed or seem kind of rote or stereotyped and I think you avoid that all very well a lot of that has to do with the prose level so I wonder if you just talk about creating the kind of detailed characters we have here like uh, his his brother or the uh, his father's friend uh, uh, Jim Howard mm -hmm. I think that character really has a lot of resonance and it, it, he uh, we like him a lot. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is about a lot of a lot of writing. I think is about drawing on your own experience and and people you've known. And so, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma. I grew up around trailer parks. Um, I had a grandfather who lived in a trailer. You know, um, out just next to an old lake in Oklahoma, and very rural. And and so, you know, a lot of these people are are based on my own memories, on my own uh, experiences growing up you know it's it's not based in Oklahoma and Pittsburgh for no reason I mean these are these are places that I, that I know um, and I know about and these are characters are based on people that I know and so you know that's what allows me to to be very I think you know specific about these people because I really do know them because they're amalgams of real people I really liked Perry He's kind of plays a small part, but it, it's an interesting character. You know, Perry is a he's a homeless guy at the end, and he uh, was originally in my original sample material that I wrote. He was going to have a larger part, and ultimately he didn't serve the plot, and so I had to chuck out that chapter. And I was so taken by him that I really had to put him back in, and so I put him back in at the end of the book uh, as because there was a character where he could. He could fit in as that guy, and it was almost like I had this actor who I had to yank out of the out of the movie, and then go, "Oh wait, okay, I've got you apart. You're gonna you're gonna get in right here at the end. Don't mess up your lines." And so I sent him back in, you know. But yeah, he's one of my he's one of my favorites too. We talked a little bit about your fictional nonfiction that begins the book, but you use this throughout the book in terms of offering us um, court decisions and uh, various kind of propagandas left in right from the from the various groups that we hear about in the book and I think it's an interesting way of not only giving us information but also I think you use them a bit as plot drivers too 
Yeah, I so the interstitial material between each chapter um, are fake user guides for implants or fake uh, news articles, legal documents, anything I could think of. And really, you know, this is epic, right? This story is epic. It's a, the entire nation is is devolving into a state of near civil war, and it's hard to convey that sort of epicness through the eyes of one character who is not the president of the United States or, you know, he's a guy that you can relate to. And so in order to open up, up the world and show people what's happening on a higher level, I really, that's what I depended on this interstitial material for. And, you know, also there are clues in it, you know, and that's, it's fun to see how what's happening in this little trailer park in Oklahoma is kind of uh, filtering out into the greater world. And, you know, I just love being able to look at it from those different perspectives. One of my favorite ones is at the end, toward the end of the book, there's an article in the BBC saying, what is happening in the United States? Like, why are the Yanks all upset over this? You know, and, and they're, they're scratching their heads about what's been happening. And it's really fun to look at it from that external perspective. The legal stuff seems to be really well done. Was that, did you like have to, did you pull stuff out of Supreme Court decisions and yeah you know I looked at I drew in a lot of uh, existing stuff so the Japanese internment you know the executive orders that created internment camps for the, for Japanese citizens of the United States uh, during World War II I mean all that stuff is out there and looking at the newspaper headlines you know post 9-11 um, a lot of the stuff that happened around then when people were were really riled up and were looking for targets um, you know a lot of that made it in and and having all that historical, uh, authentic historical data to draw on, I think really informed uh, informed the book. And also, I just had to show it to lawyers and, and try to comb out all the mistakes. There are still some things in there that I, if I could go back and I would fix it right now, but I think that it's kind of always going to be that way. You talked about Poland. You talked about the U.S. after 9-11, the internment camps. This whole civil rights theme is mm -hmm. really powerful, and it's really interesting to see the way you use a simple twist of the fantastic, this neural implant device, to give us a whole new vision of all these really old subjects. We've heard every civil rights argument 10 million times, mm -hmm. but to turn it into uh, something that's really immediate, that's happening right now in our character's mind, that's a really interesting twist. Well, you, you know, you read about this stuff and it's in history books and you think, well, you know, man, that was messed up. <laughs> um, a good thing that we can't, that could never happen now. And, and once you realize that we've had these sorts of struggles again and again and again. And, you know, while I was writing this, uh, it was during the Occupy Wall Street movement. It was during the, uh, what do they call it, the Arab Spring? Yeah you realize people are still fighting these sorts of battles, you know, especially abroad, people are fighting for human rights. And so um, this is not a unique thing. Um, this is something that could absolutely be in our future. And it just makes it, you know, much more real. The, the technology in here is so interesting. And like everything else, you, you're just a, a master of saying, okay, here's the one thing here are the 10,000 variations on it that are interesting and drive the plot. So talk about the various um, implications of the tech. For example, that at one point uh, the amps uh, prove able to uh, use the uh, radio 
uh, control to disable somebody else's uh, mm -hmm. um, exoskeleton. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you, you introduce one big change, and mm -hmm. then, yeah, and then you explore all the little tributaries that come off of it. And so there's... Um, sense enhancing implants so there's like retinal implants and cochlear implants to help with hearing and sight uh, there are implants that allow you to think faster there are implants that have uh, muscle memory encoded in them and that you can pretty much adopt in order to learn uh, how to f how to basically fight um, you know the all the exoskeletons are Im are interfacing with people through neural implants and so um, you know, there's all the different exoskeletons that people are using. And these are much more medical. This is all medical-based stuff, you know. So these are not about superhumans. This isn't about jumping over buildings or, or anything like that. And I felt it was really important in order to separate it from the vast amount of cyborg-based literature and transhuman literature that's out there, which is great, a lot of it, you know. But in order to have a unique perspective, I really, really focused on keeping these things grounded in what we already have and, and what we're likely to have soon and keeping these people people you know they're not caricatures they're not any more different uh, than anybody else who's ever been through a civil rights movement is different than other people well one of the things that you mentioned a phrase you use more than once is government cheese <laughs> and I think that that gets to the core of you know this is a uh, an assault, in a sense, on the civil rights of the poor, who yeah. are the op who are most likely to be the recipients of this kind of technology. In your scenario, yeah, most people, when they think about this, they and it, it actually amazes me. Ninety-nine percent of people go, "Oh, implants! Rich people are going to get those. Rich people are going to get implants, and it's going to create a new class system where only the wealthy can do this, that, or the other because they have implants, and the poor people just can't afford it." And I mean, I think that's 180 degrees backwards wrong. Um, the people who are going to take the risk to have their a hole drilled in their skull and an implant placed on the surface of their brain, those are people that stand to gain something. And they're people that are going to have severe disabilities and they're going to be willing to take risks in order to lead normal lives. And so they have I nothing to lose. They have nothing to lose. And, and a, and a, People that are wealthy that have a lot of advantages through, through money and stature and connections, they have a lot to lose. They have plenty to lose, and they also have plenty of other resources to draw on. So, you know, a wealthy person is going to get their kid a tutor. They're going to get them medication. They're not going to get them a surgeon, you know, not right away at least. And so, you know, at some point there is this whole other dystopia where you get a free neural implant from Facebook, you know, as long as they can monitor every neuron's activity in your brain to sell to advertisers, right? But that's, sure, but that's further down line, you know, downstream. What AMPT is looking at is when there's two, three hundred thousand people in the United States who have these sorts of neural autofocus devices and the impact that, that they have on society and society's sort of initial retaliation you know because anytime there's a big change people react negatively they say oh no stomp it out you know I don't want it to happen I don't want to deal with it and so you know that that's where Amped is living it's not going further into that dystopia you said this novel uh, was keyed off of your friend's book Fe uh, Nerve which mm -hmm. was about fear and I think 
that one of the things that you uh, explore in here is the fear of that retaliation. And you do a great job of painting that and bringing that to life in the the figure of Senator Joseph Vaughn. <laughs> uh, so uh, talk about the, the Pure Human Citizens Council and creating sure. that kind of, uh, uh, those are those are some bad people. Well, you know they're not they're not bad, you know, and I I don't think at their heart they're they're evil people. So there are really two sort of um, organizations emerge, and and there's both sides of this. You know, mm -hmm. some people are going to be fine with implants, other people are going to want to regulate them because they'll feel like, hey, if everybody starts getting an implant, I'm going to have to get one too in order to compete, and I don't want to get one. I don't want to get brain surgery or deal with this, and so they'll dig their heels in, and so. In AMPT, there's the PHCC, the Pure Human Citizens Council, and that was really that was modeled after some Southern um, pro-segregation uh, communities that that really existed existed in the 50s and, and uh, even the 60s, and and they uh, are really arguing that human beings should be kept pure and that no implants should be allowed. And then, of course, on the other side, the Free Body Liberty Group. Uh, emerges, the FBLG, which is very intentionally reminiscent of LGBT, or uh, I think those are the right, that's the right acronym. It's, you know, it's, it's certainly, they, they're free body. They're, they're for everybody being able to use medical technology in whatever they need, whatever way they need to, to solve their problems. And so these two sides really emerge. And at no point in the book do I try to tell the reader where they should stand on this, you know, because um, that's not up to me, right? My ultimate feeling about implants in general is that it will cause people to go to either side of this issue, but ultimately, there's no stopping progress. You know, technology is going to change us. It has changed us in the past, and it's going to continue to. We are tool-using mammals. We can't get away from it, and and it's scary, and I understand that, but trust me, in 25 years, you can you'll be able to go to the mall and get your ears pierced and get a neural implant. And it, in that neural implant, you'll be able to store all your albums. <laughs> yeah, right, except for the copyright ones, yeah. you know. <laughs> and update your Facebook page. Oh, my God, it's going to be terrifying. I don't even <laughs> like uh, Foursquare, so I don't know how I'm going to react to this stuff. I have to ask just a little detail. Rubik's Cube. Sure. Do you do you are you are you a Rubik's no, you know, Cube guy? I, so there's a character who is like a pro Rubik's Cube uh, user, you know. So he lubes his cube up with oil and he <laughs> solves it in super quickly and without looking. And you know, no, that was just a random thing I came across. You know, there's this whole community of people that that have been that solve Rubik's cubes. And uh, and I was thinking, you know, what kind of activity would you get really into if you were a little kid? who was given a neural implant and had this wild memorizing, memorization ability, you know, and, and it seemed like sort of the perfect thing. So I, I got into studying all about the speed cubing is what it's called. I think one, it's actually, I think it's really quite admirable the way that you um, paint this situation pretty gray. There are good and bad actors on both sides of the equation and the answers as to what is actually going to be um, the outcome of this are not necessarily clear. I mean, obviously, as you say, I think progress, we're on the, we're on the locomotive and we ain't getting off. Yeah. But how many people are going to stand in front of 
yeah. <laughs> Tree. Well, you know, it's a classic uh, civil rights question. Mm-hmm. Do you use violence or do you not? Now, there's different outcomes, you know, like if you take a nonviolent approach and then someone commits genocide on you, well, then, you know, that's obviously not the outcome you want. But if you take a violent approach and you're in the minority and that provokes the majority into cracking down and crushing you, then that's not the right move either, you know. So it's a, it's a tough decision to make. And there's some people on either side of it, you know. Some amps want to violently respond to, uh, to, to, the, to the Pure Human Citizens Council and they want to actually turn it into an international incident, into a situation where, you know, how we're considering sending troops to Syria in order to keep their government from killing its own people. Well, you know, uh, people believe that if, if the United States started doing that to its own citizens, that the international community might come here. With <laughs> Can you imagine NATO troops being sent to the United States to keep the National Guard from uh, wiping out Im- implanted people? I mean, so this is a scenario that that the the people that are pro-violence are seeing in the future and then and other people are taking a more measured and, and I think reasonable uh, course of of not responding violently and, and taking more of a, a Martin Luther King approach uh, which has been successful in the past in the United States. Um, hate speech plays a, a large part of this book and it's part of the terror and that's kind of I think there's a lot of parts of this book that are creepy and evoke the feel of horror fiction without having any of the usual furniture of horror fiction. And I think that's very interesting. Yeah, you know, the rhetoric is is very scary, and especially whenever it's really, really logical. Um, there's a, a fake Wall Street Journal opinion piece that's written by Joseph Vaughn, who's kind of the bad guy. And in it, you know, he says, look, when you implant someone, you implant a human being and when you're done with the surgery you have an amp and it's no longer a person and with since it's not a person it doesn't have human rights and since it doesn't have human rights we don't have any moral obligation to treat it like a human anymore and it very quickly it's very logical it's very it's almost emotionless in the way he's describing it but the implications are just really frightening and horrible and, uh, you know, that sort of logical thinking all the way down to a horrific logical conclusion, um, you know, that's, that's, I found that to be very scary and affecting. And on the other side of the equation, you use a, a lot of <clears throat> the prose version of movie special effects. <laughs> and I think this is something that's really great about your books is that you are able to paint these pictures for us that are better than any movie that we're <laughs> likely to see with just words that uh, create some very scary uh, critters that come out of this uh, community, uh, particularly brain. And then there's a kind of a, a spider man, but not the kind of guy. The wire man. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, you can, again, you can get, you can logically go pretty far with what you could do to yourself with these implants. If, uh, if you didn't have any boundaries and, and clearly that's not, where I want to go or where anybody should want to go. I mean, you should always have boundaries with, with the technology that you unleash <laughs> on the public. But, uh, you know, in this case, there are some fringe societies where uh, there's like these freak fights, you know, where people who have been modded out 
to the limit to the capacity of, of human endurance are fighting each other and they barely are recognizable as human beings anymore um and you know that's that's really fun to contemplate like i could have gotten a, i could have gone a lot further with that right uh, or you think about the wire man who is a he's a person who's had a a quad uh he's a quad amputee and he's got full prosthetics, arms and legs that are thin and gnarled like wires. And he sort of humps around with this uh, whole fake exoskeleton body that's really strong and, and just really scary. You know, I had to limit myself to just a couple of those things because it really take they're exciting and horrific, but they take you away from the fact that these are people with families, with children, who are being persecuted, you know, by uh, by the vast majority of people and by the government. Um, it's not a bunch of freaks against regular people. It's it's us against ourselves, you know. And that's a departure really from Robopocalypse as well, where it was humans against robots, at least at the beginning. And here I really wanted to make it clear that it was us against ourselves. And, I mean, as you say, we have an Olympic contender. Yeah, so hopefully later this summer, Oscar Pistorius, uh, who's a lower limb amputee, he has no feet, um, he will race in the Olympics against Usain Bolt, who is the fastest human being alive. So you're looking at the pinnacle of human evolution versus the pinnacle of technological evolution, head to head. One of them is evolving much faster than the other. So this may be the first, this may be the first and only time that we see the exact moment when uh, the technology is at a level where it can compete with the human being and we'll see the two side by side. You know, I think in the future, people that are running on prosthetics are going to have to run against other people on prosthetics because it just won't be any fun to watch them run against human beings with that have, well, God, I shouldn't say human beings. Now I sound like a PHCC <laughs> person, like pure pride, uh, to see them run against able-bodied human beings, quote unquote. I have to ask, were you a Martin Caden reader back in the day? No. No? Uh, he was the guy who wrote, I think he wrote uh, the original Cyborg, which was oh, really? the basis of the <clears throat> $6 million man right. back, in the, <clears throat> back in the Jurassic age. <laughs> That's going on my list. <laughs> he also wrote a book called Marooned, which made, made into a not a bad movie. Marooned. About the... Uh, uh, an Apollo space capsule trapped in orbit, oh. and uh, Soyuz has to go up and rescue it. Oh, no, I just read Marooned in Real Time by oh. Vinji. Werner Vinji, now yeah. that's a little more <laughs> recent. <clears throat> recent. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting about your character, Owen Gray, is the way his tech is integrated into his character and you use these levels of technology to reveal the levels of this character. And I, I love that kind of idea. So talk about uh, creating these, diff these different levels of technologies, different levels of mental access, and they, they all have actual real neurological uh, analogs. Yeah, so the, the Zenith implant that, that he has, which he's never been trained to use, has different uh, levels that you have to consent to uh, accessing. So um, as he descends through these levels, it, it provides like a really clear framework for how far he's gone and how much he's given up to the machine. And, you know, my th theme behind it is just that you have to trust yourself 
to be good in order to use powerful technology or you just have to know that you're evil and be okay with that and so you know he's owen isn't sure whether he's good or evil and every time he goes deeper he gets more powerful and he loses more control and it becomes more about whether in his heart he's a good person or an evil person and so you, you basically peel off the skin of the onion as you get deeper and deeper with him and he goes and and does more things that are morally questionable um, and he finally reaches the the innermost you know layer there and he has fully accessed his implant and he realizes that he's ex almost exactly the same as his enemy and that they're almost the same person but but not quite because you know at the end of the day you know Owen's the good guy and even though he does horrible things um, it doesn't change the fact that he's his motivation is is coming from a place where he's he's good there's some really nice emotional moments in this book that are genuinely touching and that's kind of hard to pull off in a book with the, oh, the level of, of mayhem and technology and excitement and uh, thought experiments that this brings and that's what I think makes this book a really involving novel so talk about developing those kind of emotional moments in the book and the kind of work that you would do to to bring that to the narrative well actually you know so I was just writing um, about Bradbury passing away and I was writing about how I never considered that him to be science fiction because he was just everything he wrote was so emotional and atmospheric you know and that's just the one thing I took away from Bradbury in which I definitely goes into everything I write is just that again and again like a mantra it's not about the gadgets you know it's not about the gadgets the gadgets are cool the gadgets are fun but it's about the people you know it's about the characters and their relationships with each other even when it's the bad guy you know, the, even the bad guy needs to have emotional reasons for doing, you know, what he's doing and so that the reader can understand, you know, how this person got twisted up and, and put into this position where they did these horrible things. And so, you know, like I said earlier, I, I didn't put in too many freaks. I kept made sure that the characters were relatable and, you know, I, I try to not just have a bunch of soldiers running around or a bunch of... 30-year-old white guys shooting at each other, you know, it's families and it's it's uh, family relationships, you know, people are falling in love, uh, there are parent-child relationships, um, for Owen he has his father and he has uh, this older man who's kind of a mentor, he has a kid that's looking up to him, um, you know, whenever you start to put all those things together, I think it just creates a more fertile uh zone and for for having emotional interactions with with people um, and making it taking it further away from just the gadgets and, and just the the high octane fight scenes and things like that which I love to write and I would just write straight fight scenes if it was <laughs> if I didn't think about it too much can you tell us any more about uh, Robopocalypse the movie <laughs> sure so so Robopocalypse is um, was bought by DreamWorks and they're collaborating with Disney and Fox to create a movie. Uh, they have an open casting call right now. I'm pretty sure that the script is in great shape and uh, they should be shooting later this summer. So this is a big juggernaut 
of a movie. Um, the de- the release was delayed, so it was gonna be released next July fourth. But uh, the Avengers did so well this year, coming out April twenty fifth, I think, that they have moved the release of Robopocalypse to April twenty fifth in twenty fourteen. So I have to wait longer to see my favorite movie. And I know, Cry Me a River, right? Like, oh, you have to wait an extra nine months to see your big Spielberg movie. But it's still, it's killing me. (laughs) It's just, I want to see it so bad. Um, And in the meantime, you know, I've actually sold the sequel to Robopocalypse to Doubleday. So I am actively writing Robogenesis, which is uh, the sequel. And the first chapter, one of the early chapters of Robogenesis, is actually included in an anthology that's coming out later this year uh, called 21st Century Dead, which is all about zombies. So I'll just let you, I'll just let your wheel, your gears turn and imagine how the, <laughs> I wrote a zombie story. Uh, that's going to be the first chapter of Robogenesis. But so I'm very busy and I'm very much looking forward to the movie coming out and, and also just uh, watching the production. And um, I can't wait till they make the casting public and and it's going to be a lot of exciting headlines. Sounds like fun. Now, this book, Amped, has also been uh, uh, bought for the movies as optioned. well. Optioned, yes. yes. So Summit Entertainment optioned Amped, and then they got bought by Lionsgate. So um, it sounds like Amped is coming through that okay, but um, you know, it's, it's not a project that's moving with the same speed as the Spielberg project, <laughs> that's for sure. But you know, I have high hopes for Amped, and it is, it's a really visual book, and just like Robopocalypse, I can totally see it as a movie, so you know, fingers crossed. It has a very human story, which I think is the appeal of your of your books. Is the as as you mentioned just a couple moments ago, at, at their core, they are, they're about families and and people that uh, we might actually know or want to know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's key. I mean, it's fun to look at shiny gadgets, but uh, but you really have to have some kind of heart behind it, or else it's just yeah, empty calories, like I said. Now you're working on Robogenesis. Are you? Are, do you see uh, see any more um, fictional nonfiction in your future? Uh, you know, yeah, I've been writing a lot of short stories, and so they're kind of popping up. They're starting to show up now in anthologies all over. So um, I had a short story in Powered, uh, which is John Joseph Adams' anthology about powered armor, and there's 21st Century Dead, and there's another short story coming out in another uh, John Adams. Uh, anthology, and then I, and then John and I are co-editing an anthology, which is awesome because he's the master of anthologies, uh, and that's called Robot Uprising. So it's going to have some more, some more Robot Uprising scenarios from a lot of our favorite authors. Um, so yeah, so I, uh, there's going to be a lot more coming. That sounds great. I've been speaking with Daniel Wilson. His new book is Amped. Thank you for joining me, Daniel. A pleasure as always. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.